0: Reading around for some Chuck Jones interviews, and he mentioned how he had a problem when he was started to do uh, the Bugs Bunny and so forth cartoons, that when somebody was sneaking up on somebody, paw coming up and then the rest of the body following it, and the animators loved it because it would they would be paid for 48 drawings per step. Right? <laughs> so that's. <laughs> That's when Chuck Jones invented the fast tiptoe. <laughs> <laughs> Cue the pizzicato strings. Bing, 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 bing. Right. <laughs> to screw the animators. It's like, no, man. We're not spending four seconds getting there. <laughs> the Acme Writing Academy is on the air, beaming to you from Acme Broadcast Headquarters in Venice, California. I'm Rick Crisman, and I'm joined today by our usual gang of writers and pontificators who are popping up like leprechauns on my screen here. Jim Frank, Bob Clark,
1: Hello.
0: Marcello Vasquez, and Mike Magnuson. It's funny, I went to a new cardiologist not too long ago, and she turned me on to this idea of having to do with pulse. And, you know, we know that, that, you know, your pulse rate, like, is an indicator of health. So if you're at rest, if you're 60 beats a minute, it means you're in good shape. If you're 90 beats a minute, then, you know, you probably ought to cut cut the salt, and get some exercise. Another thing they measure is the space between the heartbeats, which, contrary to what you might think, is not a constant. So say your heartbeat is 60 beats a minute, and it'd be one beat per second. Well, when you actually get down and measure it, the space between one might be 1.1 seconds, the space between the next two might be 0.8 seconds, so on and so forth. So this sounds uh, kind of dire, you know, you certainly wouldn't want to have something like that going on, except it turns out that the more heart rate variability you have, the greater is your indicator for health. So mm. apparently it's the, your neurology monitoring the heart and making sure that it responds as quickly as possible to shifting circumstances. So I was thinking about that, and I thought that's pretty interesting. I thought about how that might apply to music. And how you know even in jazz they say it's the space between the notes, and so forth. And how it's the variability between the notes that gives music that gives music its feeling. And I'm gonna just I'm gonna pull the mic over here and just give a little indication of what I'm talking about. Bear with me. Oh, we're gonna go over we're gonna go over to the piano. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> and I'm just gonna demonstrate. I can't hear you Are guys. Are you moving that piano? <laughs> So, let me give you, so here's, here's, a, here's a little bit of Beethoven. Now first, this piece is like all eighth notes. And so first I'm going to play it with the absolute same amount of space between each eighth note. Here we go. Okay, now I'm going to play it like maybe a real piano player would try to play it, where the tempo isn't quite so consistent. Okay, inexplicably, that sounds like music, whereas the first one did not. It's entirely because the space between the notes varied. So thinking there's some kind of organic bodily thing indicated for health that relates to this variability, and then taking this business of the variability between the pulses being an asset to music, looking down the line defined by those two points towards literature, what can we say about tempo and rhythm as uh, pertains to the written word?
2: I know when I'm writing, I, I get into a rhythm. I know it's my rhythm, and it's what sounds pleasing to my ear. And I think the best, I, I think, to, to develop rhythm and to, and to see if your writing has rhythm, you have to read it out loud, right? Exactly. Because when you read it out loud, I mean, you don't have to have an audience. You walk around your room reading it out loud to see how it sounds, how the spoken word sounds. I never have thought of it consciously, say, okay, now I've got I've to vary my thing. It just seemed to me to be once I hit my rhythm, you know, we talk about hitting your stride, hitting your rhythm.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It just seems to come naturally.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: After it, it, It's like anything. practice, you know, practice, practice, practice. But it's all an element of your
1: style anyway, right? It could be. It depends on the situation you're writing, you know.
2: Well, true, uh, and the story, you know, I don't know. I or remember other, once, years, funny years ago,
1: when I was uh, like an undergraduate at UW-Eau Claire, there was an art professor there. He was an art professor who had become a drummer. You know, a guy's name was Tete Raid, really cool guy, you know. Yeah. He wasn't like a drummer drummer, but, you know, he, he, he loved to play and, and he loved to talk about rhythms and the natural rhythms that would occur in the world. Like if you heard a flock of birds, you know, could you write that down? You know, you know, would that be a, a quantifiable thing that you could put in the notes? And I used to try to do this thing where I'd I'd play the piano at the exact rhythm as say you're reading uh, Anna Karenina or something. When she looked out about the quay, she thought about it and I'd go, <laughs> 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 and it, it, it was it was marvelously gibberishy, I guess. <laughs> I think there's some validity to that. <laughs> yeah, but like I I don't, you know, I I I I spent a lot of time as a kid thinking about music and playing piano and stuff like that, you know, and so to me, that's how I think writing should all be is that it's a matter of thinking about, you know, what. What rhythms are I are putting on the page? If it's just supposed to be, I'm, I'm articulating information, you know, that's an entirely different thing than, than making art, isn't it? Right. Like, and art comes from the rhythm. And then, then once you have some kind of rhythm that you're coming up with, the concussions and sentences and something like that, how, how, how can you get the reader to think about rhythm in the same way you're thinking about, him, about it? We know that if, like, we write a murder scene, an axe murder scene, we mention the axe murder and stuff, and the reader is probably going to see that, right? But that's an entirely different thing is saying we're going to write these sentences and assume that the reader is going to hear them in relatively the same rhythm that we thought in our head.
0: I'm, I'm kind of with Bob on this. It, that, what, <laughs> God damn it. See? <laughs> <laughs> I, I you see, for um,
3: but, um, you know, I think if you look at a writer like Faulkner, he thinks about it all the time. When I was looking at the the thread for this week, I didn't see anything uh, about Faulkner or, you know, say something, for instance, like Absalom, Absalom or uh, Sound and the Fury. I think in both those in both those books, I mean, he's just, he's crazy about rhythm and tempo. He has really long sentences, and they will have stretches where they're, you know, punctuated with short ones, phrases, not always even complete sentences. I mean, it's... Uh, right. I
0: think, I no. think Bob was asking, his point was basically, is this something that happens consciously, or is it just your mode of utterance? I, I think with Faulkner, it has to be conscious at some
3: point. Before it's ever you know, published it is. Yeah. I'm sure I'm sure when he's revising and even when he's composing he is, I mean, it, that seems to be the way with him. But my question is, I'm not sure that all authors do think about this, and I don't think necessarily all authors are very good at this.
1: And you know what's interesting? You know, Jim's talking about Faulkner, and this, this makes me think of, uh, you know, John Gardner, who uh, rather famously vilified Faulkner and Proust, both of them for being bardic and incantatory, meaning that that a lot of the point of the prose itself was to to be rhythmic, you know, incantations and mm-hmm. things that go over and over again and to and to speak as if it were poetry. And to to Gardner's view, that's the writer getting in the way of the material because he's he's writing with the rhythm, he's writing with his ears fancy instead pants. of
3: with his heart. Fancy pants.
1: Yeah, that's fancy pants. Right. And
3: it's actually very
1: odd that that's the case, you know? Like like Yeah, screw
0: that guy Faulkner. No, no, screw he's, that he fancy, it, screw right it fancy.
4: Screw that guy, uh, Gardner.
0: Yeah. Right. He, he Gardner
1: doesn't like Dostoevsky either, because it's too too emotional. Yeah,
4: it's too emotional. He
2: didn't like Borges.
1: She
3: so what's interesting is we're thinking about this as not even anywhere near like the first draft of anything you write. This is all the real work of writing. When it's like revision number three or four or five.
4: That's the question I really have. When does it begin to, when does what you're writing begin to have that distinct, healthy, variable heartbeat? No, I I don't know where
1: you guys are at with that. I I tend to uh, write more slop in the draft just to get it out. And then go back and fiddle right. with it, you know. Just because, like, we we all are going to agree here, before God and everybody, that composition is the worst part of the writing game, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Shit, oh shit! Yeah. You know that's oh, yeah. how you actually can tell the difference between people who've been doing it for a long time and people who are just getting into it. The beginning writer, man, I'm going to rip that shit out for. all oh, man, I was up all night writing, you know. Right. right. Somebody has been in it, you know. I fucked with his sentence for about thirty-five minutes this morning. You know? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> we Got pissed. You know, did something else. Okay. I've been thinking yeah. a lot about Elmore Leonard for this. But so, if you, if you, now you got to consider that Elmore Leonard is a pulp writer. Okay, he was writing commercial westerns, and then he wrote kind of commercial crime stories. But the whole thing that distinguishes him from any other writer almost of this kind of genre is that he writes exclusively from a point of view of rhythm. Like, the sound of his sentences create a feel for the book. Well, this, this is just the opening sentence from the great novel called Freaky Deaky. Chris Kalki's last day on the job, two in the afternoon, two hours to go, he got a call to dispose of a bomb. Now, well, this is, you know, functioning on a lot of levels here, but, but let's just look at for rhythmic purposes, for establishing the voice. We have exposition and rhythm. Two in the afternoon, two hours to go, he got a call to dispose of a bomb. We get it twice, we get it repeated with a little bit of different information. In, in, my, in my view, that's done strictly from the point of view of rhythm. Right? Yeah. It accomplishes Mm -hmm. something expository. We know who the guy is and what's happening and stuff, but we get it in a way that there's a lilt. It it, it came trippingly off his tongue, as it were.
3: It's also, he's joining uh, rhythm to rhetoric as well. He's using rhetorical devices of repetition and a particular sort of repetition Mm -hmm. with just a slight change at the end. And um, I think by doing that, the rhythm and the rhetorical device create a sort of expectation that maybe what's coming is inevitable. Do you know what I mean? Some sort of veracity uh, about the situation.
1: It's interesting to uh, think that there are devices and then there are other things that probably we don't consider rhetorical devices, but in fact they are. I, I, I wonder how often we think about a short sentence and a period and a short sentence and a period and the gaps between the period and the beginning of the next sentence. Right. Now when we do that, when we write in little short choppy sentences, we slow down the tempo a great children's book, because you gotta have one sentence at a time, the kid can look at the picture. Ah, and then you go to the next one.
0: Oh, that's so beautiful. Yeah, right. yeah.
1: But in a piece of literature, you can slow it down so each sentence is startling and, and you, you almost can't believe that you're hearing something expressed this way. This is the opening for, from uh, uh, Padgett Powell's uh, famous story called Typical. Yesterday, a few things happened. My dog beat up another dog. Can It's his living, more or less, though I've never let him make money doing it. He could. Beating up other dogs is his thing. He means no harm by it, expects other dogs to beat him up, no anxiety about it, nervous. It's that he won't get a chance to beat up or be beaten up. He's healthy. I don't think I am. Now, very slow, don't you think? I mean, there's no way, even if you tried to read that fast, it would be like, Poof, then pause, then yeah. another thing, then pause. When you write in short sentences like that with just everything's a full stop, everything's almost declarative in nature, it's quite different to consider a long, more elaborate sentence. So like uh, uh, later on in this uh, story, a couple paragraphs down, we hear a, a elaborate sentence like, the next day she was not speaking, a little rough on pots and pans. So I had to begin the drunk detective game and open up a box of bad breath no drunk ever wants to open. That let out the black women of Beaumont who were not so attractive in the shaky light of day with your wife standing there, pink-eyed, holding her lips still with little inside bites. The more information we have, we have a lot more rhythm and it feels faster. Right. It's almost like the the more words you have, it does feel faster, at least in terms of the tempo, right? But in fact, I suppose within within a run of fancier words, there are all there are a bunch of little spaces within that, between the clauses and stuff like that.
3: Could I add something to what you're saying there, Mike? When you think about a declarative or indicative voice sentence in English, the intonation is falling when you come to a period or you come to the end of a clause. When you're writing a complex sentence, the the subordinated clauses, there's rising intonation as it leans into the independent clause, which then falls off at the end which sort of accelerates that because you rise up and then you come down and that creates an acceleration to the end that a brief independent cause with declining intonation at the end of it is just going to, you're going to start and stop, start and stop, start and stop. Whereas if you have uh, sentences that have a lot of subordination, a lot of, uh, you know, phrases, you know, like prepositional phrases and things of that sort, you're constantly leaning into the next part of the sentence, so you'll have a prepositional phrase which will rise, then a subordinate clause that will rise, and then the, the independent clause which will fall off and end. So you're leaning into the rhythm with all those subordinate features in a sentence that's complex. Where in a simple sentence, like you were describing before with Paget, those are just little blurps, and then they end, and then that falling intonation makes them sort of. And I don't want to say this in a pejorative way, but clunk along one step at a time, like a mm-hmm. slow horse beat going down a, a road or something like that.
0: The rising and falling tones in the prose, and it's like, this is just, just another musical analogy. It's not, it's not just rhythm, it's melody, too. And, you know, you mentioned earlier uh, the idea that colloquial speech has
1: these similar kind of connecting tissues. Sure. If you think about it, when somebody starts, just like when I did, I I insert conjunctions everywhere. Most people do, yes, because they can't help themselves, but they try to stop.
3: Well, you know, when I saw Mike was going to talk about Pageant tonight, I had to go dig up Cormac McCarthy. Oh, great! And uh, Blood Meridian. You know, the reception of that book is kind of mixed uh, among various audiences, but stylistically, I think that he's doing precisely what mike just talked about where paget is removing the coordinating conjunctions like and and or and but cormac mccarthy uses them to create this rhythm as they're moving through the landscape of the american southwest so we're returning to our roots here, all right road runner okay so great um, but by doing so notice that with these coordinating conjunctions he's not necessarily saying that these parts that he are he's connecting are connected. They're just out there in the same place at the same time. They may not even be related to each other in any particular cause and effect way. And it's sort of Hemingway likes to do this, but Cormac McCarthy's doing this in more an imitation, say, of something like, you know, and this will make Marcello happy, the King James Bible, or Walt Whitman. So the passage I'm going to read, and it's really brief, but you'll you, you get the, the gist of it really quick. It's, Uh, The kid and some of his uh, buddies moving through the desert early in the novel, about page 44 in the edition that I have right here. And uh, they're, they're, they're following someone, and it says, They caught up and set out each day in the dark before the dark yet was, and they ate cold meat and biscuit and made no fire. The sun rose on a column already ragged these six days out. Among their clothes there was small agreement, and among their hats, less." And mm. you can hear how he's using those sorts of connectives that Mike was talking about to move it along. But unlike the more sophisticated prose we're accustomed to reading in uh, discursive text, this is a little bit slower. It's a little bit faster than what Paget was doing, but this is uh, definitely not as fast as the way most of us speak or, you know, would have our prose read if it was read out loud. And so he's doing that in a deliberate way. It's a slow progress across the desert southwest.
4: I'd like to add um, something to what Jim said. It's interesting teaching style. At one level, you're teaching, or the way I was, let's go a different way here. The way I was taught right in the beginning, right? When you're taking your first comp class. Sure. And you're taught exactly what you said, right? Parallel form. Exactly. You're, taught, you're awarded when you're writing subordinate clauses or
3: and combining know, sentences, combining
4: sentences and transitions and cool. ending the sentence where you know, it's it, emphasis is on the periodic sentence, for example, be able to transition to the next sentence, which connects yeah. connects, connects, transitions, transition, transition, right?
3: I bet I, I want to
4: sit in your class. Then, <laughs> then you sit there, then you go, you take a creative writing class or right. you teach you creative see this student come in and it's writing this way and yeah. then you're like um no and they give you this quizzical look what am i doing wrong you know it's like they've learned to imitate a way of writing without knowing why they're doing it oh. you know this academic way of writing where then when they're writing creatively they have to be much more conscious of the choice that they're making in fact we call that style
3: yeah without a doubt.
4: if you if you if you have choices then you have style
3: yep later on
1: when a writer becomes more advanced then uh modicum of that discursive writing back into the prose is generally a good thing
3: yes that's like on revision number three
2: talk about how paragraphs the rhythm of paragraphs on the page very important too the length of them long, long yeah the length you've got long you know long and it's up to the writer to decide when to have a, a long paragraph and then uh, possibly followed by shorter paragraphs. It all depends on what the information you're trying to get out. But paragraphs can either increase the tension in the story, you know, or, or slow it down. We all hate probably to, to open a, to turn a page and see one entire page is one paragraph. Mm -hmm. spilling over into the next page, too. It's like Terry Davis once said, and I don't know if he he knew what he was talking about, but he once said in a class, uh, it seems rather, when you see that, it seems like it's rather selfish of the author. I don't know if that made any sense or not, but it stuck (laughs) with me all these years.
1: That that was Terry Davis's way of saying it looks like the author's wanking.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Wow, that's an eight-page paragraph. the pacing of your paragraphs adds to the adds to your rhythm too.
0: We'll take this opportunity to remind you: you're listening to the Acme Writing Academy, the Acme yeah. of Writing Academies, the Acme Writing Academy, except no substitute. Mike, right. you and I, you and I had a discussion on on uh, email this week about. Uh, I, I posed the question of, what sort of rhythm do you use in situations of uh, violence, like a murder or car wreck or whatever? Do you use and, and here was my original thought was that, okay, if you're writing something that's, that's fast and, you know, somebody's coming at you with a gun or whatever, it's, it's, it's a situation where I'm going to write a run-on sentence. I'm going to write no periods because that's a stop sign. I'm going to put clause after clause after clause, and I'm going to have the sentence roll forward irresistibly, exa- you know, exactly the way the action is. You can't stop it. And when I express that to you, Mike, what was your reaction? Well, that's a common misconception. The moment you think about stream of consciousness and being
1: able to to, to render the world exactly as you read it, you realize that in order to render it, you have to be able to isolate the particulars of it. And it's difficult to do that sometimes in sweeping sentences. Faulkner got away with it. The conception is that you write fancy language. you, You accelerate the language to fit uh an accelerated situation that there would be more language right is that what you're trying to say that you, you well, I'm, you'd I'm just saying
0: it? that you would the language would run on without stopping in the same way that the event you're describing is unstoppable like a car crash or somebody coming at you with a gun
2: i think in a case like that when you've when you've got uh, action
0: it, the short
2: sentences work because when there's something that's uh, you know Fears and, and scaring the hell out of a person's going on. You don't, it, it's not one long train of events. They come in short little bursts, right? Right. The, the long, the, the, then the long, longer sentences, the longer sentences used for the aftermath of the or aftermath of where the emotion comes into play. Right. Right. Because you've had fear. You've had my God, I'm going to fucking die. And then suddenly you're not dead. That's when longer sentences come in, where you're really getting to the the meat of the matter, I think,
1: because you're dealing with more complicated things or yes. more abstract things. That's probably that's not probably right. the, the the right way to express it. I, I think if you have, when you're writing violence, for instance, if you focus on one individual thing at a time, in a short sentence or a short independent clause, that might that might be a better way to refer to it. I think the reader reassembles a sequence of declarative sentences into something that's moving without you having to describe everything in there. If you say uh, uh, I walked out in front of my house and a car blew up in the street. Okay. We can see that. Okay. That's because this is an image with which we're already familiar, I guess, from TV or whatever. Right. The point of literature I think is, is the consequence of moments of, you know, not violence necessarily, but mo- moments of great emotional intensity, which perforce must be rendered in a simple, clear way that we can understand them. You know, there are there are only several things we really experience in life. You know, we're happy, we're sad, we're gonna live, we're gonna die, we gotta take a shit, eat. You know what I mean? There's not that many things. Right but the the meaning we apply to all things and all those things in various combinations is infinite and requires you know fairly elaborate phrasing to to explain, whereas I fell off my bike and slammed into a guardrail at 55 miles an hour. you know that's about all you need to know <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I lived by the way. you know I have a surprising example of this, and I don't think that our literary friends or us would think that the Hunger Games is a magnificent book but it really is quite and you know I think we probably all know the movie better than the books at least you know that's how most grown-ups get to it which is you know a lot of violence a lot of action so you can imagine in the in the book itself which is fairly short and it's all written in first person present tense it, there's one violent thing after another so you know the writer was faced with how am I going to do this and you can see throughout this book That the the goal of the writer to present this violence, to present this super intense action is to slow it down into a sequence that the audience can see and sense and be there. And the way is is to write in very short, concise sentences and allow the reader to fill in the blank. So you you remember the, the tracker jacker sequence?
0: Oh yeah! Names, right, right, right. When they mm-hmm.
1: drop the hornet nest on—oh on, on Jesus! The careers, it's it's you know? evil. I mean, it's just the worst. Like that would be the end of the world. So this is this is how it reads in the novel. It's mayhem. The careers have woken to a full-scale tracker-jacker attack. Peta and a few others have the sense to drop everything and bolt. I can hear cries of "to the lake, to the lake!" And though they hope to evade the wasp by taking to the water, it must be close if they think they can outdistance the furious insects. Glimmer and another girl, the one from District 4, are not so lucky. They receive multiple stings before they're even out of my view. Glimmer appears to go completely mad, shrieking and trying to bat the wasps off her bow, which is pointless. She calls to the others for help, but, of course, no one returns. The girl from District 4 staggers out of sight, although I wouldn't bet on her making it to the lake. I watch Glimmer fall, twitch hysterically around the ground for a few minutes, and then go still. Now, in that whole passage, the longest sentence there is 20 words. Mm-hmm. And the way that, you know, the way this is visceral to us is you just mentioned that people are getting stung, <laughs> you know, repeatedly by wasps. And man, you get the idea, right? You freak right. out about it, right? Right. We, we can't write each individual sting. You know, the reader supplies the context. You can see it and he just guides your imagination along with one tight, image after another instead of relying on the you know fast-paced lugubrious language to do the work for you the kind
0: right. of thing that i would do which right. i was the well, thing I mean, it's, at, it's, it's, at the beginning of this discussion that i was suggesting would be the way to go we've now gone full circle and and i need to go back and rewrite about 15 short stories
1: You know what's going to happen, though. In in about four weeks, you are going to come back and you are going to have written the action sequence in a series of two hundred and fifty-word sentences or something, (laughs) and it'll be perfect. And if you like,
0: take that asshole. (laughs) Could could happen. Rules. Could happen.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, for sure.
0: (laughs) Your point, Mike. I take it one step further and say, during the act of violence, there is no rumination. You are not sitting here thinking. Oh my God, the car is flipping over or whatever. Right. It's just, it's I something mean, you, that you happens and you're not even, you don't even necessarily hear the bullet that hits you, you right. know? So, no, you but, but I, I want to give an example here. Cause, cause I just pulled out, um, Dennis Johnson, Jesus son, and it's the car crash while hitchhiking. And here's, here's two examples. He's ruminating just before, and here's how his prose sounds. He says, And yet I dreamed I was looking right through my eyeballs, and my pulse marked off the seconds of time. The interstate through western Missouri was, in that era, nothing more than a two-way road, most of it. When a semi-truck came toward us and passed going the other way, we were lost in a blinding spray and a warfare of noises, such as you get being towed through an automatic car wash. The wipers stood up and laid down across the windshield without much effect. I was exhausted, and after an hour, I slept more deeply. Okay, that's lyrical, that's ruminative, it's descriptive, it's rich. Right. And then and, a half, and, a paragraph <laughs> la- a half a paragraph later, the car crash happens, and here's how he says that. I was thrown against the back of their seats so hard that it broke. I commenced bouncing back and forth. A liquid which I knew right away was human blood flew around the car and rained down on my head. When it was over, I was in the back seat again, just as I had been. I, ro- I rose up and looked around. Our headlights had gone out, the radiator was hissing steadily. Beyond that, I didn't hear a thing. So there you have it chop, chop, chop. Just this uh, bare bones. That's all he had time to think about in the moment. You know, just think about the, the goal of writing
1: fiction. And you know, we're talking standard pulp fiction, whatever. It's to get to the dialogue, isn't it? Right? Or the and, action. And, yeah, but the, the dialogue, you know, story is seen at the heart of which is dialogue. So when dialogue yeah. is happening, the only thing we're going to get aside from people talking are short movements, you know, in, in hack dialogue, we get, you know, Mike said, comma, looking over at his shoe or picking up his drink, right? But you see all, the, all those little things in dialogue, the little the little stage directions, the little movements of the characters are rendered in these little sentences. It's because
2: in dialogue, you don't have time. It, it's wrong to fuck around.
1: You know, a classic example of that is in dialogue, nobody ever answers the phone correctly. So somebody answers the phone, and they don't go, "Hello, this is Mike." <laughs> <laughs>
3: Hello, it's right. like, "What do you want?" <laughs> when,
1: when, they, Hello? when they hang up, it's just like,
3: <laughs> "You, were, you know? weren't taught." You weren't taught to answer the phone that way. I know. Hello, <laughs> oh, Magnuson's residence. What the fuck this do you, you want? This <laughs> is she.
1: This <laughs> is. <laughs> May I take your order, please? Hey, what Joey,
4: Joey Joe? Baggett, Donuts Pizzeria. What the fuck you want? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. I always I, I skip reading the dialogue. <laughs> of course, I do. I do if the novel's boring, me death.
0: Well, you know, yeah. If we have we beat this thing to death? <laughs> Apparently so. Nice <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> <you> lead in. <laughs> we, why, what, this this right. Bob Clark needs to rescue us from ourselves.
2: <laughs>
4: <laughs> <laughs> but uh, was it the five-second rule? Yeah. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
0: Somebody told me today that that the reason why dogs eat your dropped food so quickly is because in in dog years. It's only a <laughs> point 0.4 second rule. <laughs> <laughs> we to say we so we laughing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the sage observation.
0: <laughs> okay. To- check the to-do list here. All right. I guess that's the, the end of it. Pizzicato strings.
3: i <laughs> <Wow. laughs> <laughs> talking about that. Yeah.
0: Let's see. Uh, Paget Powell. Great. <laughs> games right. Fibonacci sonnet, nope, next time. I guess the only thing left to say is that you've been listening to the Acme Writing Academy. And this is Rick Crisman on behalf of Jim Frank, Bob Clark, Marcello Vasquez and Mike Magnuson wishing you a pleasant rest of the day and happy writing.